Uh, welcome back, Internet people, to the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. I am Matt Johnson. And I'm Matt Krause. And we're here to talk science at you for hopefully an hour to 90 minutes, something in that range. Don't scare them off. Well, it's just, uh, that was intended to be optimistic, as in not for two and a half hours this time. You know, we're keeping it it's still in-depth, but kind of brief. Okay, well, you had some stuff you wanted to lead off with, so uh, lead away. Yeah, so uh, so just to contextualize you people, our plan here is to play catch-up a little bit. We have like nine months of topics that we have not yet gotten around to, so we're going to try to knock a bunch of these off the list today pretty quickly and do like a massive lightning round. Can we take our nine months of topics and turn them into one topic, baby? <laughs> uh, we Yes, it does feel like birthing, you know. A baby. A lot of these have been... Yeah, so a lot of these quote-unquote news articles are not like as topical as they were when we pasted the link in our Google Docs uh, document. But I think they're still interesting and, and good to... Some of them are good to quickly go over. And just as a, like an inside baseball note, I mean, we have not yet released episode six yet. We have recorded it, but we're going ahead and recording episode seven now. Because basically, I'm going to be moving to the U.S. from Malaysia in like a week. You're kind of busy with other stuff, so we're trying to kind of stockpile content so that we can be doing the editing and space out the releasing while not having to connect with our crazy schedules. So that's the plan. So you should be getting this in a few weeks from when we record it, probably. And hopefully getting (laughs) episode six a few days from when we record this, but I guess we'll see. Okay, ready to begin? All right, take them away. Okay, so the first little article... So the the article about the solar-powered salamander. Did you uh, read this one? I did not. This is left over from episode one, I think. And actually, I think we might have pasted it in for the episode notes, you know, in something like January. It's just a cool little thing. The headline sort of oversells it a bit. You know, it says uh, the first solar-powered vertebrate, suggesting that the salamanders photosynthesize. But that's only actually partially true. I mean, what's basically happening here is you've got a salamander that's got a symbiotic relationship with some algae. So there's this particular kind of algae that kind of latches on to the salamanders and basically uh, releases uh, glucose that the salamanders, you know, can use for energy. But the kind of interesting thing is when they looked closer at these uh, salamanders and specifically uh, the embryos of the salamanders, because the the algae kind of latch on even when they're just uh, eggs and, and embryos, it looked like the embryonic cells are actually taking up these uh, this algae into the actual cells not just kind of hanging around outside which is kind of cool and then they did some more sophisticated stuff involving carbon radioactive carbon 14 basically they put radioactive carbon 14 in the water that the embryonic salamander cells and the algae were in so the algae when they undergo photosynthesis take up carbon right carbon dioxide so they're taking up the radioactive carbon and they found out, basically, they looked at the um, the embryos when they were raised in the dark versus raised in the light. And they found out, basically, that the salamander embryos only take up the radioactive carbon-14 when they are raised in the light. So, basically, only if the algae are undergoing photosynthesis do they suck in the radioactive glucose that is produced by the algae. So, anyway, basically, you know, they conclude that if, if you raise these salamanders without the uh, algae present they still live but they don't live they they don't survive as well they grow up slower and so forth so they have this weird kind of like super symbiotic relationship with this algae you know where 
it helps them get additional energy and, and nutrition from the sun. And they've got this these algae in their cells, but you know, obviously, it's not like the animals actually actually photosynthesizing, uh, which is a shame, actually, because it would be cool to photosynthesize. Well, I thought actually that plants, the the photo, what is it, photoblasts or whatever, were also thought to be originally a symbiote that got sort of merged in there. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I don't know much about the evolutionary history of this. I don't really either. I got a terrible grade in that class. What are they called? The chlorophylls? Well, chlorophyll is the is the um, you know substance that does the photosynthesis. Chloroplasts. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it's thought that they originally showed up. They sort of uh, were some sort of symbiote. So that they were kind of their own single-celled kind of thing or something like that, and then that they kind of latched onto plants and eventually got sucked into the plants and became part of them? Yeah, there was some kind of... I think that they evolved from some kind of bacteria. Like, you know, okay. way, way, like, you know, several billion years ago. Interesting. I had no idea. All right, maybe we'll talk about that more in depth later. As a, as a quick aside, you never read a science fiction book about a kid that... This was like some kind of, you know, fifth grade science fiction book about a kid whose science fair project went awry and he turned green and began to photosynthesize. You never read this book, did you? I think I did. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I have no recollection of what this was called, but I vividly remember this book existed. Was it a whole book or was it like a collection of short stories? Well, this one was a book. This one was definitely, I mean, like, you know, kid length book. So like 150 pages or something probably of kid sized text. Huh. No, I would totally read that. I'll have to look that up. I'm sure a quick Googling could reveal it. Also, I, you probably never read this, but this was an awesome kid science fiction book. This one I do remember the title of was called The Secret Life of Dilly McBean. But it's about a kid who somehow became magnetic and could like control the magnetism in his hands with, with his mind, which was a pretty, pretty awesome science fiction story for a kid. Um, isn't that just an X-Men? Well... Did he grow up and turn into Magneto? In this particular book, he did not, like, grow up in a concentration camp or anything like that. That was edited out for the fifth grade audience. Yeah, you know, now, I guess, you know, I never thought about that, actually. Now that I know who, uh, you know, Magneto is and that I... Oh, here it is. It's called uh, Top Secret by John Reynolds Gardner, which is not a superbly descriptive title, but that's totally the book about the kid who could photosynthesize. I will link this in the show notes. Top Secret... While Alan, when Alan Brewster, a fourth grader, decides to discover human photosynthesis for a school science project, blah, 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 Alan discovers the biggest difference between hemoglobin and chlorophyll. The former contains iron, while the latter contains magnesium. So he decides to ingest foods that contain high levels of magnesium. Clearly a highly plausible premise. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the only difference, actually. He mixes salt water from an aquarium with peanut butter, cocoa puffs, raw liver, and Mexican refried beans, runs the mixture <laughs> through a blender, and drinks it. By the way, thanks uh, to Molly Grew on Amazon for a, a very good Amazon summary of this. Uh, yeah, he discovers his skin is turned green, his taste buds have disappeared, he doesn't need to eat, and he craves sunlight. And, you know, of course, then hilarity and, uh, and rising action ensue. <laughs> anyway, so check out Top Secret or The Secret Life of Dilly McBean if you want some awesome kind of 80s or 90s-tastic kids' science fiction. Also, the movie Top Secret, a high recommendation from me. The, is that the one with the cow? Yeah, the the Val Kilmer kind of Naked Gun style movie. I'm surprised that you don't have this movie memorized like I do. I don't know if I've uh, ever seen this, to be totally honest. Oh, oh it's awesome. You must uh, obtain it immediately. I mean, if you like the Naked Gun and Airplane and so forth, it's the same people that made it. 
I love Airplane. Has it aged well? We were just talking about this the other day. Spies Like Us has not really aged superbly well. No, I think it helped. I mean, you were a big fan of Spies Like Us. I did not watch it till I was an adult in you know the 2000s rather than a you know an eight year old in in the 80s or 90s. And I was did not see what all the fuss was about. So I don't know if it's the the decade or your age because I was talking about this with my boss too. So he is, as you would expect, a little bit older than I am. Yeah. And he also said he used to love it, and then he recently rewatched it and found it to be kind of terrible. So maybe it's a blend. Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, I think uh, comedy especially has become a lot more sophisticated. It, you know, it's hard to – somewhat hard to say that with a straight face when you look at like Hot Tub Time – you know, a name like Hot Tub Time Machine or something like that. But actually, I do think, you know, a good comedy is more sophisticated now than it was 30 years ago. And even something like Caddyshack is often cited as one of the funniest movies of all time. And I, I look at Caddyshack now and I don't find it all that funny, really. So we tried to watch that as a kid because, yeah, exactly the same reason. You know, like relatives are like, this is the best movie ever. And I, I don't know if we were too young or maybe I should retry that in the interests of science. Yeah, give it a shot and let me know what you think. Like, I think Caddyshack has not aged nearly as well, partly because we're not shocked by some of the shocking stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of it's a bit broad and so forth. Airplane, I think, even though it is more sort of, it looks stupider on the face of it, right? Because the whole point of Airplane is stupid gags, right? But as long as you buy into that premise, I think it actually ages pretty well. That style kind of ages better, assuming that you also kind of have some context for the pop culture references. Because um, I just saw a tweet by Weird Al Yankovic the other day saying like, you know, it's it's harder than you would expect to like explain some of these references to my eight-year-old or nine-year-old daughter when we're watching Airplane together. Like the radar range? Yeah, and things like, uh, like they were parodying, uh, I remember, because I remember watching this for the first time as a kid and my parents explaining some of the jokes to me. Like, you know, there were references to, like, 1970s coffee commercials and stuff like that. Like, Jim never has a second coffee, second cup of coffee at home. That's a reference? I always thought that was just sort of an asinine thought to go with. No, that's the thing, is that there are all these things that you wouldn't get unless you grew up then. Because that was a commercial for Folgers or one of those uh, coffees back then where, like, you know, they go out to a restaurant and he has a second cup of coffee because he likes the restaurant brand better than, you know, the one they use at home and... You know, the wife goes, oh, Jim never has a second cup of coffee at home. What's up with that? Maybe I should switch brands. And, you know, of course, in Airplane, they play that into like, hmm, Jim never vomits into a bag at home. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was just sort of, a, you know, because initially it's asinine and then she realizes that they're all about to die. Huh. Yeah. So I think there's a bunch of that stuff, which I'm sure there's even stuff that I like was not sufficiently explained to me. You know, back when I was a kid and first saw it when I was eight, those references were only like 10 years old. Of course, now they're like, 30 or so years old. I would kind of love it, like an annotated airplane now. There must be, well, you and I need to launch our app that we... Yes, yes, take that part out. I want to keep my money. <laughs> okay. Let's just say for the podcast... We have an idea, and if you're a venture capitalist... We have an idea that would solve this problem, and if you'd like to give us enough money to live on for like a year or two, we have an awesome idea. S-S-H-H-M-M at gmail.com. No, 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 that's not us. Damn it! <laughs> We're not. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't get that on Gmail. Uh, we we had to get Super Science Happy Hour at Gmail dot com. So SSHHMM is just our WordPress. And uh, by the way, while while we're thinking about it, we'll say this again at the end. But our our Palland uh, episode five co host Laurie Skelly got excited about getting us a Twitter handle. 
which we did intend to do at some point, but she got more excited faster than we did. And she, we couldn't get any of our standard stuff on Twitter. So I think on Twitter we are going to be SSHAPHO. S-S-H-A-P-H-O. So hopefully by the time you hear this, we will actually have established that Twitter and tweeted something with it. Hmm. But anyway. Yeah, what were we talking about? Oh, movies. Yeah, I think Top Secret the movie has aged pretty well, actually. I think it's even less pop culture-y than, uh, than Airplanes, so you should watch that immediately. I, I will also link that in the show notes. While we're talking about aging of movies, I wonder if anyone's looked at this. If you watch an old movie, they talk so slowly. Yeah. Well, this is, I, yeah, I was, um, I, and they're longer, too. Like, movie pacing, I mean, people complain about pacing being too fast, or, you know, MTV generation, all these fast cuts, but the pacing in old movies is so painfully slow, and... And not even, like, the Citizen kane you know, sort of, like, dramatic work of art movies. Even the old James Bond movies seem like you could cut out, like, 10% of the running time by just getting rid of some pauses and... Yeah, I mean, even even like kind of dumb comedies or yeah, silly action movies and stuff tend to have a running time of nearly two hours to a bit over two hours, and I think that actually in a lot of cases is a progression because you know it's it's pretty rare nowadays to get anything but like a super serious movie that's over two hours. Is that true? Well, I think movies definitely have gotten shorter. I think. Um, I mean, we talk about them as being two hours, but typically they're like, I think an hour and forty five minutes. Is pre- is kind of a good guess at an average for a movie nowadays, and, and shorter for a comedy, longer for a drama, but still typically under two hours, or right about two hours. Huh. I don't know, but I do feel like older movies are are always longer than I expect them to be, and much slower paced. I'm looking on Rotten Tomatoes. There's not like a graph of this or anything. No, but anyway, I was going to say I think in you know yes, in some cases I think you know that's maybe not good if you're watching like Fast and the Furious and it's just like car car explodes, cut to shot of other car exploding and so forth. But uh, in a lot of cases, I think that does show like learning to edit better and, you know, establish things, you know, like establishing shots don't need to go on forever. They just need to like, you know, set the scene and then move on. Actually, uh, not to be a pain, but you appear to be incorrect, sir. Oh, really? How so? So I'm looking at this bar graph by decade of the average length per film. Okay. And it rose, you know, well, from like 1910, where it was presumably like one minute. Well, yes. It sort of plateaued in the 60s at about 130 minutes, and it's pretty stable ever since. I, I am skeptical about their... I mean, because what, what, what are your inclusion criteria? Well, so that's what I'm wondering, is if it's more that there are more movies now, right? Yeah. So what you'd actually need to do is look at the uh, the movie minute, right? Yeah. Like a weighted average based on how often people sit at uh, watch the movies. Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. Lord of the Rings, though, is, you know, quite long. Les Mis, yeah. quite long. I, I don't know. Like, maybe I'm getting skewed by what I tend to watch. It is true that, like, the epic-type stuff is often two and a half or three hours long, which I think... It's true that I think you had fewer movies 50 years ago that got that long. Although I think, you know, like Gone with the Wind and stuff were pretty long, right? But I think comedies have certainly gotten... I mean, it's oftentimes you'll get a comedy nowadays that's only like 95 minutes long. Yeah, okay, so this one has some more recent stuff. So this is the longest movie of the year. 2007 was Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. At 169 minutes. 2008 was Curious Case of Benjamin Button at 166. 
Uh, Avatar, right. 162. 2010 was a year for short movies. So that's Inception and Shutter Island at 148, 138. But yeah, all right, so here are the five grossest films of 1992. Aladdin. Grossest? Five highest grossing. Oh, highest. <laughs> that's different than grossest. True. Like Human Centipede would be the grossest movie <laughs> of the year. Yeah, so 92, uh, Aladdin, 90 minutes. Home Alone 2, 120. Batman Returns, 126. Lethal Weapon 3, 118. And A Few Good Men, 138. Yeah. All right, so fast forward to 2012. So that's uh, 20 years later. We got The Avengers, 143. Dark Knight Rises, 165. Hunger Games, 142. Skyfall, 143. And, lamentably, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn (laughs) at 115 minutes of utterly wasted life. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll have to get into this more later. I don't want to dwell too long on it, but I... Maybe it's just comedies I'm thinking of. You know, is it, should you consider like all the major releases? Should you consider the top? I, I don't know what to consider representative for this, but maybe my sense that, that comedies at least are getting shorter is incorrect, but I, I don't know. At least I do feel like the pacing is faster. Maybe it's just you get more in so they feel, you know, because a well-paced two and a half hour movie definitely feels shorter than a slow paced, you know, hour and 45 minute movie. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Oh, anyway. So we're doing a great job of not getting sidetracked, but shall we move on past... So that was about Salamanders, in case you forgot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I looked some other stuff up uh, while we were talking about movies. So, yeah, there are photosynthetic bacteria. And the thought is that they uh, were symbiotic with the plants, and then they sort of got absorbed by the plants as chloroplasts. Okay. And then, presumably, these small algaes get absorbed by the salamanders. And then it's just turtles all the way down. Yeah, so maybe in a few million years, the salamanders might actually just directly incorporate these things in and uh, yeah, and be born with... Although, so I mean, with the plants, this is going to reveal how little I know. Is it kind of like mitochondria that have separate DNA from our main DNA? And follow-up question that really shows how little I know. Plants do also have mitochondria, right? Or is that, a, is that an animal kingdom kind of thing? Uh, hmm... Most of what I know about mitochondria comes from Madeline Langle novels. Yes. Uh, not my actual graduate school education. <laughs> wasn't she a scientist? I'm not actually sure. In, in my weird way my brain indexes things, I put her, like, my brain often conjures up her and Marie Curie at the same time. Because they have That's just like French books names. you read in middle school. Well, that and, like, uh, they, they both have French M names and are ladies who have some association with science, but... You know, does your brain do that sometimes? Like, two things that should not really be stored, like, in the same little bin still are for no good reason? You mean, like, synesthesia? Oh, bringing it back around. Oh, snap. Uh, I think we have more synesthesia to talk about later, but... Well, actually, maybe that'll go for the music episode. But you know what I mean? Like, it's things that you associate, like, for no, that are indexed together for no particular reason, or is that just something that happens in my brain? No, no, that, I think that happens to everybody. Confuse two things that have no logical reason to be confused, like two people or two... Well, particularly if it's sort of timing-related. Like, you would have been exposed to both of those around the same time, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some reason, but, you know. So, yes, mitochondria are found in most eukaryotic cells. Yes, they're in plant cells. I guess I could answer your question instead of mocking you. Yeah. What was your other question? Well, I guess the question is, is, uh, is that how it works with the chloroblasts? 
also so mitochondria it's a similar story right where we think that they were like once separate things that kind of became symbiotic is that how i think that how they yeah I, I should know this really well I, I don't know i think the chloroplast is also i think there's something that's like sort of not quite conserved but uh i'm not 100 percent sure about that whole theory yeah all right maybe we should look this up more later offline because i mean obviously that you know for something to become a separate organism to become fully incorporated into the plant or whatever that's that's a tricky process, you know, evolutionarily. So I'd be interested. Well, to... it's probably easier for a plant, right? Because their cells are so huge. I guess that's well. There's yeah. There's room for them, but just in terms of like. No, but there there are much larger. But like when you you know, I don't know. Like when you when you undergo mitosis or something like that, if it's all the same, I don't know. I guess this is thinking about organisms in maybe the wrong way. But like I'm you know when you think about the organelles and so forth that all come from the same DNA. You think like they should be able to work together to split the cell apart appropriately, but how do you how do you do that when like some of the stuff inside the cell is technically another organism or at least has its own DNA? Uh, well, the fact that it's different DNA is you know that's fine. I think the like the polymerase. Whatever, well, but you know what I mean. It. How how does it know to work with the host organism? You know to to do all these things, or maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe if they're organelles, there's just enough floating around that they just get like split, and that's fine. Um, that's how it works. I don't know. But they they do appear to have their own uh, chloroplast DNA, and there's lots of it, mostly from land plants. Okay. I guess the other question is, like, in the evolutionary process, like, when you reproduce, you know, when you make an egg cell, does that egg cell just inherit chloroplasts from, you know what I mean? Or I guess, well, with a plant, it wouldn't exactly be egg and sperm, but when you when you reproduce in some way, do you just put your own chloroplasts in into your your gametes you know what i mean because again like the production process confuses me a little bit there oh uh i'm not totally sure anyway i study the cells that don't divide so i don't have to think about things like this yeah i know again revealing that we're bad biologists so maybe we should move on but it's an interesting thing to maybe think about although i can't remember i read about someone patch clamping a plant and i was just so confused (laughs) It actually happened at Nellie's defense, too. She talked about how, you know, they're patch-clamping, like, I think, T-cells, because they have calcium okay. channels. And I was just like, but, but why? To explain to non-neuroscientists, patch-clamping is basically a way of recording voltages from usually a neuron, so that you can see, like, when and how it's firing and so forth. That's a very high-level, imprecise, yeah, that, aka wrong correct. explanation. But, yeah, so I think you normally think of it. In neurons, but of course, yeah, lots of cells communicate electrically in some way, or at least not necessarily communicate, but do change their voltage in relation to certain events. So, yeah, it's something you could do with, you know, kidney cells or liver cells, I imagine, or, you know, whatever kind of cells, if there's some reason to do it. Yeah, uh, I mean, so I think that a lot of cells do have calcium channels, because calcium, you know, mediates a whole bunch of reactions and is a good second messenger. It just hadn't really occurred to me that you would, like bust out a patch clamping rig to look at that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. It's not exactly an easy process. No. But at least it's, I mean, it is pretty well established by now as a technique, so there's lots of people that know how to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people know how to, Well, that's not true. There, there are a lot of people who know how to do it, but not very many who can do it well. Yeah. There is a new robot that does it, though. Oh, really? It's really expensive. Okay, so uh, shall we... 
nice little digression there. Shall we move along though and uh, leave mitochondria, mitochondria and and photosynthesizing salamanders and such uh, for a, another day? Uh, sure. All right. So I have two paired topics again from the backlog, uh, which both fit under the theme of Star Trek and are both fairly quick, but are kind of interesting. So this one's from January of 2013. Uh, scientists are working, physicists are working on a quote tractor beam unquote. They say Star Trek. I guess Star Trek has tractor beams, right? I know Star Wars has tractor beams. I think the tractor beam is sort of a sci-fi staple. I guess so. Yeah, they they specifically call it Star Trek style, but that's the BBC saying that. You know, with a picture of Scotty from Star Trek in it. Oh, actually, the first appearance of a tractor beam in fiction, thank you, BBC, is thought to have been in the American author E. E. Smith's story, The Skylark of The Skylark of Space, which was serialized in 1928. The story contained references to an attractor beam. Huh, do you think it it elided itself down to tractor beam? I guess so, yeah. Which, I, I mean, we think of tractor as being like a tractor, but of course, that I guess tractor beam is, you know, etymologically... Well, like traction, uh, just right? Just as good, you know. yeah. I guess a tractor beam, I guess, well, this is already going too deep into this, but attract, I think, would mean to like... Because track is to just like exert a force or pull or push, right? I'm trying to think of the... Um, I think tract is from the Latin to pull, right? Uh, yeah, I believe it is. From, yeah, tractus is draw and pull. Okay. Or trahiri, which is an annoying, irregular Latin verb that I could never remember. Okay, so I, so I think attract would be like to pull to specifically yourself, right? But To, to pull towards. Okay, yeah. It would be so... ad trahiri would be to pull towards. Right. So, so you get attract. Whereas a tractor beam would be, I mean, it's, I guess that's a pretty subtle distinction, right? Because if you're pulling something, it's pretty hard to pull something in a way that's not towards the puller, but I, I guess it's a fine distinction. Anyway, so it became a tractor beam, which does not relate to John Deere tractors. But um, at any rate, they published this in Nature Photonics. This is uh, people at the University of St. Andrews. So that's cool, but the downside is, of course... This is not a tractor beam that works on anything larger than a subatomic, or I'm trying to see how big the uh, things are that they can suck in with light. Well, it says moving microscopic particles. I think they think that this could work as in things up to cell size, like they could use it eventually for cell sorting and things like that, like sucking in... Uh... Well, there already are optical tweezers. This looks suspiciously like a pair of optical tweezers. I don't know how those... Well, I, I guess... The the different thing here, I believe, is that you can use uh, so light. Light exerts a force on things it hits, right? I mean, it's a very. This goes back to, I believe, Kepler. They said in the article, yeah. Oh yeah, so this is. I mean, this is pretty cool. Thank you, BBC, for having a pretty well informed and well researched article. Johannes Kepler in sixteen nineteen posited that radiation has a force. Do you know how he discovered this or observed this? No. He observed that the tails of comets always point away from the sun. So wait, 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 wait. Is that why, or is that is that one of these things where you're completely right for an utterly wrong reason? Well, actually, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. Because presumably, the front of the comet is a thing being pulled by gravity. Yeah. Wait. Now I'm. Uh, you're right. Now I have to think about whether or not that's actually true. To Wikipedia, I go. <laughs> <laughs> also, why is Nature Photonics in Japanese? What? When I cl I clicked on the actual article, oh, like the PDF? No, the whole website. 
It's so futuristic, it's in Japanese. Kraus, uh, I think you're turning Japanese. No, I really think so. <laughs> no, apparently it has a Japanese edition, which I clicked on by mistake. Let me just see if this is Solar Sail. Okay. Well, the Solar Sail idea is true. I don't know if... Well, yeah, so, I mean, it is true that light exerts a force, right? When light hits you, it, you know, exerts a very small force on you, pushing away, you know, or in the direction that the light was going, right? Well, actually, in a letter to Galileo in 1610, which is weird to think of Kepler like, you know, having a pen pal who's Galileo, he said... He wrote about the idea of a solar sail. Provide ships or sails adapted to the heavenly breezes, and there will be some who will brave even that void. That's cool. I never knew that they were like thinking about spaceships with solar sails in 1610. That's kind of crazy. That's actually really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we still don't know how to do it. Yeah. It says his Comet Tail stuff came several years later, so it's not super clear whether that idea actually came from the Comet Tail stuff or not. But I'm not sure in Comet Tail... I'm not sure how best to look this up oh i guess this oh, okay i get this so i think the idea yeah according at least according to wikipedia this is right so basically kepler edited it to say that <laughs> yeah yes yeah, very controversial uh but kepler is pushing his agenda uh, as a comet approaches the inner solar system solar radiation causes the volatile materials within the comet to vaporize and stream out of the nucleus carrying dust away with them the streams of dust and gas thus released form a huge and extremely thin atmosphere around the comet called the coma, and the force exerted on the coma by the sun's radiation pressure and solar wind cause an enormous tail to form pointing away from the sun. Coma, 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 <laughs> You come and go. Yeah. Anyways. So I guess that makes sense, right? So it's not just that, like, the comet was this cloud of stuff. But that's not, an actual, that's not actually force, right? It's just that you're heating up the comet. And the front is hot. But, I mean, in other words, the thing that's causing the comet to be a cloud of stuff rather than a lump of stuff is the solar radiation. And also, as it's, you know, causing this stuff to vaporize, the thing that causes it to vaporize in a particular direction is the same solar force, right? Because otherwise you'd expect it to just be... I mean, I guess, actually, if it were just gravity, you'd expect it to point the sort of uh, light stuff to be pulled more towards the sun, right? Because the comet doesn't have much gravity of its own. So if anything, you'd expect the comet tail to point into the sun, but instead it points away from the sun. Well, yeah, I guess so. But that's, I think that's still different from like an actual solar sail, which doesn't vaporize. Well, right. But in other words, it's right. There's two things going on here, right? The radiation causes the stuff to vaporize, but then the direction of the force it exerts causes the vaporized stuff to stream out away from the sun instead of towards the sun. Yeah, but you, you get you can get a radiation pressure without any vaporizing. Oh, sure, sure. But in other words, right, right. I mean, it's two separate things. It's the the fact that there is radiation makes the comet have a tail instead of just being a lump of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then then it then the radiation pressure is what causes the tail to go in a particular direction rather than just be a cloud. Yeah, I guess so. So that's Star Trek topic number one. Uh, Star Trek number two was basically. Uh, a similarly ridiculous idea that people are people at NASA actually are working on a warp drive, or at least that's the headline, right? And this is oh, it's like Times. every third physics article gets turned into a warp drive. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's a cool idea, right? Because uh, I mean, do you know the basic um, the idea underlying most of the warp drive stuff they talk about nowadays? Um, other than people really want funding. 
No. Well, in other words, this is the clever thing about this, and this is the original theory of a Mexican physicist, Miguel Alcubierre, which I've just mangled, in 1994 suggested basically that you could get away with traveling, quote-unquote, faster than light without actually breaking relativity, which says you can't move faster than light, by basically making this warp bubble thing where essentially, you know, in this sort of imaginary scenario, you have a ship, and at the front of it, it has this thing that contracts space. And at the back of it, uh, it has this thing that expands space again to normal size space. And essentially what you do is you kind of I feel like I've seen this used in science fiction. You kind of contract the space between you and your destination and travel through that space at kind of a leisurely pace. But, you know, effectively you cross long distances very quickly by creating this warp bubble. Which, I mean, I know very little about how this would work theoretically, but yeah, apparently hmm. it's not, you know, according to these physicists, it is not entirely implausible. Now, it is entirely implausible, at least at the moment, to do with any sort of macroscopic macroscopic object right but you know here they're looking at doing it just contracting space for like photons or subatomic particles of some sort or another so this is again the big caveat of like well we're not doing this for anything macroscopic but yeah hmm. but it's still kind of a cool idea so you know maybe they'll get it working on subatomic particles which would still be cool oh so speaking of your your tractor beam they got up to a yeah. thousand nanometers uh they had little beads that were that big Okay, cool. So that 1,000 nanometers would be one micron, right? Yeah, so not large. Which is about the size of a cell body. Like, that's about the size of a neuron cell body, right? Is about one micron? Uh, I think a little bigger than that. But, I mean, that's on, the, that's on the basic order of the size of the body of some human cells, right? Yeah, I think probably more like 10 microns. But the 1,000 is the biggest they tried in the paper, too. So, you know, it could work for something larger. The soma of a neuron can oh, okay can vary from four to one hundred micrometers in diameter. So taking the geometric mean of those, yeah, it's, most of them are probably on the order of tens of microns, but can get as small as a few microns. Okay. Oh yeah, so we never finished the story about the tractor beam. So I think the difference is, I mean, I don't know how the um, photon tweezers work, but I think the difference here is that you're using the light to specifically pull the thing towards the source of the light rather than push it, right? Because it's a lot easier to push than to pull. With uh, with this solar or this uh, photon, you know, based pushing. Yeah. So the tweezers look like they set up a gradient, basically, and it moves along that. Okay. Right. So, which again is probably easier to push left or you know, relative to if you're if you're the the tractor beam looking forward, it's probably easier to push something away from you or to the left or the right versus pull it towards you. But apparently, they figured out a way to do it. It almost looks like, and this paper is really hard to read because this is. Not a thing I do. Oh, I couldn't even get past the title because there's too many accents and weird uh, Eastern European characters and so <laughs> forth in it. It's true. The title on my iPad is in four different fonts, so I can get all all the accents and hats on the letters. Yeah, I don't even know what to call those, but uh, I think they occur with like Czech names or some some type of yeah. thing in Eastern Europe. Yeah, but it almost looks like you know when you you hit a pool ball, you can make it, you can put enough spin on it that it'll like bounce back. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what they're doing with photons. Okay. Oh, that's really slick. Yeah, again, we are probably mangling the physics of this, but the uh, the general idea is cool. I love how they use tractor beam in quotes. Like, we can't really believe we're getting away with this either. Oh, yeah, I was going to... Yeah, I mean, 
it was pretty awesome that uh, when I clicked through to the actual article in Nature Photonics... Yes, it still used the word tractor beam. Exactly, yeah. They, they, it wasn't just the BBC sensationalizing it. They use it in both the title and the abstract, which is pretty great. Okay, so are we done with Star Trek stuff? Sure. Cool. Well, while, we're on, while we're on space, we should talk about uh, Tycho Brahe again. I was just going to suggest that because we're, we're orbiting around him in an elliptical fashion. <laughs> by talking about Kepler. Uh, so we could talk about his Kepler's near contemporary Tycho Brahe, who I... Did we reference him on episode six? And we, a, we did, and then we decided to save him for episode seven because he is sort of like the James Bond of medieval astronomy. Yeah. There is a simile. Yeah. <laughs> Almost sure that comparison has never been made before. So Ty, this is Tycho Brahe, not the uh, Penny Arcade character, but the his that person's namesake. Or possibly... People use the word namesake in both directions, so uh, whichever direction you want to go. But the one that came first was not the video game uh, comic strip character, but the Danish 17th, or 16th and 17th century astronomer. Really? There were no video games in 1550? Well, in a matter of speaking, he might have played Asteroids, but uh, that's about so, uh, f- so first of all, we should link this photo, but if you don't go to our website, you should go to the Wikipedia page and check out the um, portrait of Tycho Brahe on Wikipedia because it's, it's pretty awesome. Well, 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 yes, you should check out the, the grandeur of his most walrusy of mustaches. Exactly. But while you're on that page, can I implore you to scroll down further? Uh, this might be yes. giving away. And read the caption under Tycho's nose. Well, I was just going to say the portrait does not uh, mention the most awesome thing possibly of all about Tycho Brahe, which go ahead and tell the story if you'd like. Well, uh, he had a false nose. <laughs> which he had because? Uh, he lost his nose in a sword duel against a Danish nobleman who is also his cousin. Yep. But this was not his first duel. He had a, an earlier duel over the legitimacy of some bit of mathematics at a wedding with a professor. Yeah. I, sorry, I take that back. They had two duels. It says on Wikipedia, one on the 10th, and then another one again on the 27th. Yep. <laughs> well, they had, no, they had two, I think they had two quarrels, one on the 10th and one on the 27th, but then they resolved both of those quarrels with a single duel, I think. Right. Oh, you're right. Yes. But it, but anyway, it is awesome that he lost his nose in a duel, which was about, you know, mathematics, basically. <laughs> Honestly, that would make, like, uh, paper reviews so much easier. Yeah. Uh, well, in some ways. <laughs> we'd, like to, uh, we'd like to thank reviewer number one for his contributions. We'll see, number, we'll see reviewer number two on the field of honor tomorrow <laughs> at dawn. That would be kind of great. I feel like that would at least lead to, uh, you know, the old guard getting uh, kind of knocked out by the young upstarts a bit faster in science than uh, happens nowadays. Just due to faster reflexes. Oh, Eric Kendall's going down hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you would not last past age, age 50, uh, unless you were, like, super fit. But the caption next to that bit of the article is hilarious. It says, this artificial nose, picture of a nose, which is not Tycho's, is the sort that Tycho wore. Yeah. Good work, Wikipedia. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so the, the artificial nose he wore, you know, it was not made out of, like, silly putty or something nose-like, but it was made of... It's thought to have been made of silver silver and gold, although it might have also been copper or something like that. But it was definitely metallic. So he had a kind of metallic cyborg artificial nose, uh, which is sadly not shown in, in this portrait of him. Oh, he was, uh, he was exhumed in uh, 2012, I think. 
And so it turned out his yeah. nose is actually brass. Although he may have had more than one. <laughs> you know, your, your fancy nose, your, your like, semi-formal nose, well, exactly. your black tie nose. I, I, I can just see him like, kind of looking through his nose collection you know, in the morning, like comparing it to his tie or whatever. But I guess the question is, were these pure metallic or were they like painted in some way to vaguely look like an actual nose? Because um, they could have been flesh color painted, I suppose. No. Well, I mean, I guess gold would be fairly close. Well, yes, but... <laughs> I mean, it matches his mustache. That's that's very close to Goldfinger slash gold member. But, uh, but I don't know. I, I like the idea of him having a metallic robo nose, but maybe maybe it was painted to be a, a human color. I don't know. So in addition to his nose, he was one of the richest people in Denmark. He owned about 1% of Denmark, sort of in the middle of his life. Yep. And he had a moose. He had a pet moose. Okay, I was hoping you would get to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he had, a, he had a pet tame elk or moose. <laughs> well, so this, this is actually a, a useful fact. Yeah, so what they call an elk in Europe is a moose. The elk in the U.S. is something entirely different. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> This whole paragraph is full of wind. <laughs> the moose died <laughs> because he took it on vacation while visiting someone else. <laughs> it drank a lot of beer and fell down the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> uh, yeah. And actually, this incredibly comical method of moose death is sort of a, a bad omen for, for Professor Brahe because he died in a similarly comical way. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so he was at a fancy dinner, and he didn't yep. want to get up because, you know, it would have been a breach of etiquette. And uh, But he really, really had to pee. Right. So he held it in and held it in and held it in, and then uh, he died. And then died of some kind of kidney or bladder ailment, or, or so it is thought. I mean, it's uh, some people say that he might have actually died from mercury poisoning and other things, but at least the, the standard story, which may or may not be uh, apocryphal, is, you know, yeah, that he held his pee too long. And uh, not that his bladder exploded or anything, but something went wrong, and uh, and then he died. Well, the eggs... So people, for a while, thought that he had uh, either died from mercury poisoning from his nose, or, you know, because he was sort of interested in science and messed around oh, as yeah. sort of an alchemist. But I think the autopsy also reported that he most likely died of a burst bladder. Okay, because uh, this other thing in Wikipedia suggests that he might also... Have died from uremia, which is kidney failure, but I don't think it necessarily means or a form of uh, kidney failure, and and the you know the buildup of waste in the blood and so forth, you know, resulting from kidney failure, but not necessarily because of a burst bladder per se. So it's unclear, of course, because uh, there's not much of him left to examine. I think anyway, something something in that range is. Uh... And he wrote his own epitaph, which was. And I quote here, he lived like a sage and died like a fool. Oh, I saw that quote, but I did not read closely enough to see that he actually wrote it. <laughs> yeah, pretty, he was pretty, pretty awesome. awesome. And despite his, like, incredibly comical life, he was an awesome astronomer. Yeah, so we, we should have mentioned that first, maybe, that he, uh, you know, he made a number of interesting observations and things, uh, none of which I can summarize quickly, I don't think. Well, so th this is sort of the problem, was that he was, uh, he collected a ton of data, but he didn't do a ton with it. Yeah, I think I, I seem to. This is another guy that is mentioned extensively in that God Particle book that I am always citing. Because uh, one thing the God Particle does is kind of summarize the history of physics from 
basically Democritus who first proposed the idea of the atom up to, you know, about 1994, whenever the book was published. But he, he goes into some detail in Tycho Brahe, and if I remember correctly, yeah, he was mostly known for making, like, great measurements, but other people used them to build theories more so than he used them himself. Yeah. He had this sort of weird, like, hybrid heliocentric, geocentric model. Yeah. Where I think the sun and the moon went around the earth, and then everything else went around the sun. It's sort of like a, please don't inquisition me. Yeah, sort of the weird hybrid model. But he, and also, I mean, maybe most notable, his assistant was Johannes Kepler, who then went on to develop the laws of planetary motion and uh, and so forth and become debatably, but not that debatably, a greater astronomer or a greater, you know, figure in astronomy. So, uh, you know, his influence on Kepler is maybe one of the most important things he should be remembered uh, for. Yep. Okay, so anyway, Taiho Brahe, maybe this is first in our, well, I guess second in our series after Feynman of ridiculously awesome scientists of history. I really got to get a mustache like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on, well, you've got a beard still, right? I do, but it, it's not nearly as walrusy. Yeah. I've got my, um, I officially started growing my unemployment beard uh, <laughs> in between jobs and it's coming along all right. I mean, it's still kind of on the scruffy level cause it's only been going about a week, but I'm trying to decide how, uh, how beardy to allow myself to get. Huh. Well, stay tuned. He also invented herbal medicines, which were used into the 20th century. Hmm. Doesn't say anything else about that, though. Okay. Uh, we'll have to look more into that maybe later. Okay. Taika Brahe, colon, awesome. I really need to get a pet moose while I live in Canada. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you need to um, get it from a fairly early age if you have any hope of taming it. Oh, come on. I'm an expert animal tamer. Okay. Well, just kind of jump on his back Teddy Roosevelt style and... Uh go to town yeah exactly i don't i don't know where i have this image coming from but i always imagine teddy roosevelt riding on a bear uh that's just sort of my mental image of him no no but that's where teddy bears came from he wouldn't shoot a baby bear oh did he he had an actual pet bear or something right uh i don't think it was a pet bear but uh i don't know he probably if anyone were to have a pet bear it would be theodore roosevelt i thought who is it who had a pet bear wow once again not doing great about uh distraction (laughs) Oh, come on, we've covered false noses, three things in, in space. I guess how to pet bear would not be like the leading off bit of his biography. What's that? Sorry, you cut out a bit. I was looking for a reference to a bear in Teddy Roosevelt's biography, but it turns out he did a bunch of other things too. Yeah, it's one of those things that's hard to Google. He was a, his was the bull moose party though, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Also, I would imagine he drank a lot, just, you know. I am going to guess, yes, that he was uh, pretty pretty liquored up most of the time, yeah. Roosevelt famously ordered the mercy killing of a wounded black bear. Uh, maybe I'm just imagining his, his... I feel like there's some awesome figure in history that had a pet bear, and uh, I don't know how to Google for that. Could it be Matthew Johnson? Uh, no. I do sort of wonder, like, why certain animals are much more domesticable. Ten historical characters and their unusual pets on Listverse. Of course there's a list. I'm surprised it's not on BuzzFeed. We should, probably shouldn't get too deep in this because it's not science. But Pope Leo X had a white elephant, which I can only presume he sold uh, at a <laughs> northeastern Christmas party. I, oh, Ivan the Terrible had bears, apparently. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. The Russians... Yeah, but he I th- threw prisoners to them. It wasn't like he cuddled with them in front of well, his samovar of yes. tea or something. Uh, but I do... You know how Russia is. I assume that every Russian has, like, a pet bear, you know. Just kind of 
probably hanging out in like the in in like the kitchen under the sink, like the uh, woolly mammoth and the Flintstones, just as like their general purpose garbage disposal and uh, sarcastic commentator. European royalty does well on these pets here. Yeah, Napoleon's wife had an orangutan and other stuff. Lafayette had an alligator. This guy whose name I oh a Roman what is it a consul I guess Roman consul named Licinius Murena who I have never heard of had moray eels. That's a moray. Um, he had moray eels which he dressed up and put jewelry on. <laughs> I didn't get that far. That's pretty awesome. That's really that really is a moray. He perhaps loved his eels a bit too much. Uh, Negro Nero oops. Politically inappropriate. Oh, there, sir. Spoonerism. <laughs> Nero had a tigress. Sorry, African Americans. Uh, that was literally that was just a misspeak. Um, okay, Paula Dean. That might have to come out. Yeah, that's probably come was, out. That was just a spoonerism. Um, Nero had a tigress. Ramses had a lion. Oh, Mozart, Mozart did have a, had a starling. starling. That sort of works, I think. Mozart also had the shittiest museum I've ever been to. The Mozart Museum? Yeah, I went to his house. It was really shitty. Mm, well, I mean, I guess it was a long time ago. No, this is the thing. It's like, imagine you had a historical figure's house. Yeah. But you don't have any of this stuff. So it's like, right. Mozart had a table like this one. This one is from Ikea, but Mozart also had a table with, you know, four <laughs> legs. With legs and wood. Maybe some scratches. Yeah, the whole museum yeah. was like, if Mozart had a house, we think it might have looked like this. Yeah. Well, I can see how that would not be that interesting. Um, Virgil had his fly. Thank you. Uh, was it Miss Narden? Yes, who I had for Latin. Okay. Oh, you knew about Virgil's fly? Yeah. Uh, that's so weird. Why Why would you like flies? Oh, no. It, it was like a political stunt. Oh, okay. So okay, he used okay. it to save his land, so he was going to bury the fly. Oh, hang on. Speaking of flies, my pest control guys are here, so you can keep talking, but I'm going to be gone for a minute. Oh, it's kind of like Beetlejuice. You can summon them at will. I think I'm just not going to say anything until Matt gets back so that we can have banter instead of... All right. Are you still there by any chance? You like it spicy? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure how much of that you got. Um... Oh, all of it crystal clear. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Maybe that'll be bonus content on the DVD. I was trying to think of something funny to say in Malay, but I behaved. I mean, you would have been on the headphones. I don't think you would have been able to hear you. Ah, oh, that's right. Damn. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to, like, that guy is super nice, the pest control guy, but it is hard to, like, make conversation with people around here uh, who are not, like, I mean, the students and stuff are, like, super fluent in English and a little more, like, hip on pop culture and stuff like that, so we can talk about the same kind of stuff I would talk about in the States, but it's a little hard to make small talk with uh, the locals. Wait, so so you have, like, prophylactic pest control? Yeah, yeah, they come every month or two and just kind of, like, spray the perimeter of the apartment, which I, I think makes sense. That makes sense. sense. Yeah, because, I mean, here it kind of has to be prophylactic or the entire world gets... I mean, our university, which you would think would be relatively hermetically sealed, there are bugs constantly all over the place in the university, and, like... Prophylactic pest control only kind of keeps them at bay. So, uh, yeah. Tropics, kind of annoying for uh, bugs and stuff. Okay. Anyway. I don't remember where we were. So we were talking about Virgil's flies, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, the the stunt was that he, the government was going to take, like, rich people's land and give it out. 
except for lands containing like tombs. Okay. So he had this enormous lavish funeral with like orchestras and uh, you know. Oh yes. Like celebrities came and all this, all for the fly <laughs> that he said was his pet. Then he buried ah, okay. it in this giant mausoleum, and then he got to keep all his lands. Nice. Thinking outside the box, Virgil. Okay, so we do not actually have a pet fly. No. Okay. Uh, I like the so number one on this list, although there's a couple of bonus items, is that Pope Alexander II, apparently, according to legend, owned a chimp-human hybrid pet. <laughs> ah! It's not a thing! Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> I will have to link this whole article, because uh, this paragraph is just sort of hard to believe. In the same uh, section, it is said that a certain Count Gulimus had a pet ape, most likely a chimpanzee, as well as a wife that was rather promiscuous. In fact, when the Count wasn't home, the wife would have sexual relations with the animal. And apparently, according to this legend, the Count then was murdered by the ape when it saw him with the with his wife, you know, and the, the ape got jealous and killed him. And, oh, anyway, so this is the background to the Pope's chimp-human hybrid, which is that, you know, the, the wife survived and became the wife of the ape, and then, of course, gave birth to a monstrous creature that was a chimp-human hybrid, which eventually ended up being the pet of Pope Alexander II. <laughs> I have no idea how this, how this legend arose. Some are convinced that this report is true. Others think that the animal or whatever was named Mamo or Mimo. They think that it might have been a deformed and mentally handicapped human child, which is somehow more horrible than uh, a human-ape hybrid if that was the Pope's pet. Or this could all be just completely made up. Hard to say. Speaking of pets, so the bonus one is that Salvador Dali had an ocelot? Apparently, yeah. Which, I mean, I, yeah, I've seen this picture of him with the ocelot before, so I totally believe this one. Um, do you watch Archer? I do, but I think I've only seen season one. Maybe How many seasons are there? I've seen four, season one I for think. sure. Oh, I've maybe seen season two, but not past that. Well, sure. you, know, you know how Cheryl has an ocelot? Yeah, yeah. It's got the same name as Dali's. Oh, that's... Probably what it was a babu. Yeah, that's a remarkably. I mean, that's got to be a direct reference. That's a remarkably uh, sophisticated joke for Archer. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like someone snuck that one in under the radar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and to wrap up the list, by the way, I'm not sure how much we should really trust this list on listverse.com because the last paragraph of the uh, the ape human hybrid thing says so this creepy story remains a mystery to our days but due to the biological plausibility of a human ape hybrid and the fact that indeed aristocrats were fond of keeping apes as pets it shouldn't be completely disregarded as a mere fantasy and i would argue that um human ape hybrids are not that biologically plausible and that it should be disregarded as a mere fantasy but uh i mean i would believe that he had either an ape or a deformed mentally handicapped child yeah but I think humans have fewer chromosomes than apes. Yeah, I think it's pretty... Un I'm sure someone's tried it in the course of human history. I think either so far, Stalin... I think Stalin and... Either Stalin or Hitler tried it. Tried mating with... Uh, or tried mating humans and apes? Uh-huh. You mean they tried making people mate with apes, right? Not them personally. Well, I think in, in vitro. Oh, oh, that's actually... Yes, okay, I found it. Uh, remarkably uncruel for those guys. Uh, so it was in the 20s? In the guy's name, so we can shame him, was Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov. Uh, Ivanov and he used his own... I think own... I read a Tolstoy novel about him. Yeah, I know. Well, he used his own sperm and female chimps. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And I guess did not produce uh, a mimo of his own? No. Hmm. 
too bad. The like you know one one and a half million years of divergence didn't. So yeah, much that kind of hurts it, I guess. Even the even you know three minutes of tender strains of uh, Barry White is not enough to uh, bring together those those million years of divergence, huh? I don't know what uh, the Soviet equivalent of Barry White would be. I think it'd be the Trollolo guy, possibly, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, so just to cap off the exotic pets list, even though this is not science at all, Andrew Jackson apparently had a parrot, uh, which is that's not very that, plausible. Uh, Except yeah. the parrot got uh, didn't the parrot get kicked out of his funeral or someone's funeral? Yes, because he was uh, swearing prolifically in both English and Spanish. I didn't know that. Uh, I don't know if Jackson spoke Spanish or someone else in his household spoke Spanish, but uh, yeah. Oh yes, all of them learned from the president. So apparently, um, Andrew Jackson was a bilingual swearer. And also, speaking of which, because his portrait is right here, I would argue that in the like humans looking like their pets motif. Andrew Jackson is one of our more parrot-looking presidents. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he kind of look like a parrot man? He's got a bit of a beak to him. In a similar vein, Dali is more ocelotalicious than your your average human being. He's certainly got a very, like, sleek, cat-like uh, demeanor, yeah. Uh, also, one of the better mustaches in history, along with uh, Tycho Brahe. Pope Alexander does look kind of like a chimp. Virgil, not super fly. I'll have to find this article again. I mean, I, I recently read, you know, the whole thing about how couples tend to look alike. You know, there's been some research showing that that actually is true to a degree. You know, that people tend to mate with others who have, a, you know, a more than chance resemblance to one another. Really? Yeah, I'll have to dig that article up again. I can't, I can't find it probably too easily right now. Uh, it was in plus one, I think, which, it, which is not that surprising, I guess. It's obviously... You know, this goes back and forth, but there's the evolutionary biology thought, I think, is that you want somebody with a genetic profile that is somewhat distinct from yours and somewhat similar. Like, there's a sort of trade-off between, like, mixing up the gene pool and compatibility of your various genes and stuff, so... Well, there's also, you know the uh, major major histocompatibility complex stuff? Yeah, yeah. I guess, should I give a summary? Yeah, please do. Oh, well, it's a similar idea, right? You want someone who's who's, like... Similar, but not too similar to to your to you to be your your partner, right? I, I mean, I think that goes along with the appearance, right? I mean, I think those two go hand in hand, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think really, I mean, we think it's gross nowadays to talk about it, but I think you know, and uh, you look in the Bible or in like previous cultures, and you know, marrying your second or third or fourth cousin was not at all uncommon back then, and that level of genetic similarity is actually, you know, it turns out not not too bad for the gene pool, and and. In some ways, good. I'm not sure where I'm not sure where the um, trade off is between good and bad, right? Like first cousins. First cousin is not so good. Is is not good, but I think once you get out to second and third cousins, it's neutral to beneficial to you know have that level of genetic similarity. Yeah, maybe. Or people that you know have some some genetic similarity to you that are not technically related to you, you know, in any observable way. Let's try that again. Yeah, maybe. Wait, what? Oh, got it. <laughs> Les cousins dangereux. Yeah, so that's playing at the movie theater around the corner for me. <laughs> nice. The MCH papers, so I guess we should summarize this for people who are not you and I. Um, so you have these, uh, well, you have an immune system, right? <laughs> well, hopefully, yes. Well, Unless yeah. you live in a bubble. <laughs> and uh, so you have this, uh, like, blob of, uh, I don't know how to explain this at all. Sorry, I'm kind of tired. You explain it. That's all right. I... What do I look like? Someone with a degree in uh, biological science? 
Okay, so you have these things poking out of your cells uh, called antigens. Right. And uh, your immune system recognizes things based on the antigens. So they're like sugars or proteins. And uh, you have su- you have like sort of a clump of genes that sort of give rise to certain antigens called the major histocompatibility complex. And right. there's a couple of variants in people. And it turns out that your sort of choice in uh, life partner, I guess, or who you find hot, is determined by the similarity in your major histocompatibility complex. Right. To, to a certain extent. Yeah. So, to an above chance level. Not, you know, not completely deterministically. Oh, it's not, like, completely determined. And there's, there's a, I don't know, there's, there's a, more than two, there, there's a small number of sort of possibilities. And there are yeah. a bunch of sort of horrifying experiments. So this one is by Wakeland et al., they asked 121 men and women to rank the pleasantness of odors from sweaty t-shirts. Yeah. And uh, the, the odors that reminded you of your like uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, or ex had fewer alleles in common with the, the, the t-shirt donor. So you sort of actively select for okay. dissimilar alleles. Then your ex? No, then, then yourself. Oh. Oh, interesting. I thought it was that you more wanted people with... Uh... That doesn't make sense to me. Why... Why don't you want people with similar MHCs? No, no, you want dissimilar ones. Wait. Because they're less likely to be related to you. Oh, right. Okay. Got it. I thought, okay, 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 okay. But I mean, is that one also like a... Well, this is probably going to have to come out of the podcast because it's like not... I don't know it well enough. I thought there was... Uh, so you want diversity, but is there a trade-off? Because how does that go along with the like wanting people that are somewhat close to yourself? It doesn't. It just reminded me of okay. it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So you really want as much diversity as possible. Yes, this is a this is a pro diversity thing. Okay, okay. As a complete side note, <laughs> do you know if there are any? Well, not a complete side note, but like I'm just thinking that's like the subtitle of the show. <laughs> is this <laughs> is this is there a gender difference in this? Because I this is based entirely on personal experience, and without getting too specific, I have certainly had more women that I have had an association with, let's say, remark on my odor than, not like in any weird way, but you know, like that I have a smell that they like. And I have never, maybe I just don't have much of a sense of smell, but like I seem to associate like women having more of a a sensitivity to this kind of thing than men do. I think that's true. I mean, I think women do have a generally a little bit better sense of smell in general than men. But I don't know. I'll we'll have to look this up offline, unless you can find it really quickly, or I can. But uh, I, I would, I would hazard the guess that the whole like, you know, oh, you like this sweatshirt because it smells like your your missing mate or whatever. That that is more associated with women than it is with men. But I, again, this is based very anecdotally, so it could just be that I have a nose that is no more functional than Tycho Brahe's, and uh, you know, I'm just a weirdo. No, I think it's pretty well established that there are sex differences in all faction, with guys being yeah. uh, like vastly worse at it. Okay, okay. I think that's true across species, too. Really? Yeah. I wonder why that would be. I don't know. Huh. There was a uh, review in 2001. Sex differences in human olfaction between evidence and enigma. Sorry. <clears throat> Getting all choked up there. Yes. I, I smelled a, a hot-looking lady walk by. Or she smelled you first. Yes. Sex differences in human olfaction between evidence and enigma. 
Yeah, females generally being superior to males. Whether sex differences are more pronounced with some odors than others, and how sex differences are affected by the manner of testing. Two different explanations for the superiority of females over males are evaluated. So we should probably read this article offline and summarize it for people later if we want to yeah, talk about talking. that more. Oh, are you reading it now? Yeah. Well, maybe I can do another quick topic while you're reading that, and then uh, does that sound good? Sure. It smells good, too. All right. So another we'll, – we'll edit this down so it's more cohesive, hopefully. I just need to make a mega mix of you and I saying that sentence over and over again. Yeah, we're, we're not on top of our game tonight, unfortunately. Well, uh, you know, we've covered more topics than we usually do, and we've only been recording an hour and a half, about 15 minutes of which was my pest control guy coming. So we're doing all right. Uh, but we should probably like do three or four more quickie topics and then wrap it up. So we've gotten past the episode one show notes. <laughs> on to episode two show notes that we didn't get to. Uh, this was a cool little quick article that I think I can cover quickly and that you can go into autopilot for because it's not too controversial knowing what we know. Oh, sorry. Getting a text message there. So this is addressing the issue. This is from May 2013. So we're now nearly into the last six months or so, or we are into the last six months or so. The question as to why you don't remember anything Typically, most people don't remember much, at least, that happens before about age three. You know, and you may wonder why that's the case when, of course, you do have a functioning brain. And it's not like you don't remember anything that happens before age three, because obviously you're building, like, life skills and things. You're learning how to view objects in the world, how the physics of the the universe works. You're picking up language and so forth. Um, So it's not like you completely forget the procedural knowledge that you gain during your first three years of life. But you obviously do, you don't have, like precise autobiographical memories of events that happened before about age three, and for some people uh, older. So anyway, this study suggests what I think we kind of thought anyway, that this infantile amnesia may be due to how quickly nerve cells grow in the hippocampus, which as you know, but as everyone may not know, is the brain region that is strongly associated with long-term memory. Not exactly that everything is stored in long-term memory there, but that at least uh, the hippocampus kind of contains the pointers or the... um, the index to where memory information is stored in other parts of your brain so that it kind of binds together information into events that you can then recall. And basically the idea here is um, that the hippocampus is expanding so quickly, you know, for the first few years of your life that you're not able to reorganize its contents fast enough to like keep pace with the changes in the structure so that basically you're kind of like, overwriting it as it's as it's growing i the the best analogy i could come up with for this was if you could imagine like formatting your hard disk to another format while trying to keep the data on it or something like that it's you know obviously hard to do that uh it would be possible but you know not not in any easy way but that's it's still not a very good analogy but anyway that's the thought um do you remember who the paper uh, who was that Result due to? So let's see. Because they, anyway, the the real research was they did it in, they did this study in mice. Presented at the annual meeting of the Canadian Association for Neuroscience. Woohoo! Study co-author was Paul Franklin was one of the people who did this. And basically they did this in mice. And what they did was um, they got some baby mice and they, I think, administered a drug or they did something to slow down how quickly new neurons formed in the hippocampus. And basically, um, with baby mice, you have the same problem as humans, that if you teach them like how to navigate a maze, after a few days of hippocampus growth, or theoretically, uh, after a few days of that, they will forget how to, they will forget the maze, right? Whereas an adult would not forget the maze, or a, a baby mouse would not 
would still remember the maze after a shorter period of time. But when they slowed down the rate of neuron growth in hippocampus, they would the baby mice would remember the maze better. Now, of course, that's at the detriment of like you know their brain growing slower, which is probably not good for them. But it did get rid of this like infantile amnesia effect. And they said that they may be able to check this to some extent on humans soon. That uh, if you've got children with brain cancer, which you know of course is sad, but possibly an interesting side effect is that some of the drugs that they get for that brain cancer slow down the generation of new neurons because I guess you want to slow down so growth in general, right? Because of that, you know, yeah. slowing down how the tumor, the cancer cells uh, divide. So basically they can see if these children, you know, that survived the brain cancer um, and had slower neuron growth during a certain period of time, if they don't have that infantile amnesia effect as much as uh, children that don't get those drugs. Huh. So it's kind of interesting. We should add actually that, so we, we sort of downplayed this, but whether or not the new neurons grow at all has actually been sort of, Fiercely controversial. Well, in adults, right? I mean, in children, it's not that controversial. I don't know when you are thought to have all, or you know, all, almost all of your neurons intact, but it's not at birth for humans, right? It's. Uh, I thought it was actually more synaptic pruning, but I guess you you keep growing for several years. I think for a certain amount of time. I mean, certainly, you know, the human head and brain. You're born with more of that relative to the rest of your body. Then you, you know what I mean? Like your brain grows less over time than like your arms. Yeah, I think you're at about ninety percent when when you're born. Yeah, which is why kids are so bobbleheaded. But yeah, there there was a lot of um, you know controversy a few years ago about whether adults continue to grow new neurons in the hippocampus. But that's now not that controversial, right? I mean, we've all pretty much agreed that that does happen. Well. I think, you know, uh, Pashka Rakish at our alma mater was sort of adamantly opposed to it. Yeah. But there's actually a really cool study uh, from Sandia National Labs, where I sort of sometimes hope to work. Yeah. So they got patients... So it's hard to tell when neurons are born, right? So you can inject people with uh, all right. sorts of nasty chemicals, but you're not allowed to do that because <laughs> they're nasty chemicals. Um, but what they did is they got people's bodies who were born sort of around the era of crazy nuclear testing... Oh, right. I remember the study. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, starting with the Manhattan Project. So there's more uh, strontium, right, in the atmosphere? Yep. And you can even pin it down a little bit more, like, based on the amount of... Uh, I'm not sure if strontium's one of them. There, there's all different isotope ratios. There might have been a few others, yeah. Uh, carbon-14, carbon which right. is actually the carbon dating one, moves around, too. But so, yeah, so you take these people, you wait for them to die. You ask, like, you know, when were you born? And then you grind up their hippocampus right. and you look to see at the isotopic composition of their hippocampi? Yeah, sure. They're seahorses. Yeah, so it looks like there's a take-up in the neurons of their seahorses. Yeah. It's consistent with things being born. We, sh we should mention that seahorse, or hippocampus is Greek for seahorse, which is why we said that. Because <laughs> it's kind of seahorse-shaped in the brain. Um, but I think whether it happens anywhere outside of the olfactory system, to bring it back to the nose again. So the olfactory oh, yeah. system is a slam dunk for new neurons growing, because you have the neurons yeah. like going right to your nose, right? Right, and those are sense neurons, so they're a little bit different than central nervous system proper neurons. I think they're still technically CNS neurons. Well, they still are CNS, but you know what I mean. They are a, a bit of a specialized case. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they're exposed to the world, right? You get new ones every couple of weeks. Yeah. So I think that is, like, uniformly accepted. Hippocampus is... Right. People are coming around, I think. And then the cortex, like, Lord only knows. Pr probably not, but... yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think most people are on the side of new 
neuron growth in the hippocampus because it's all there are also things about how that you know might be involved in depression and so forth that that is i think slowed down if, if it indeed happens that you have slowed hippocampus neural growth in people with depression and so forth so there's various other things spinning off of it that um I think enough people are on board with the idea of new neurons in the hippocampus. But anyway, in adults, not nearly as fast as in infancy. Yeah, there's some cool computational stuff, too, where you can sort of the, the formation of the neurons is linked in time to memories. So that might explain your sort of weird linkage between uh, Madeleine Engel and... Uh, and and uh, Marie Curie. Yeah. yeah. Is that you have like linkages, like the neurons were born in a, at a similar time. Right. So, so they sort of wire together preferentially and... So you always right. get sort of like temporally indexed that way. Oh, that kind of makes sense. Okay, so I, I finished skimming the uh, the sex yep. differences in human olfaction. Uh, it's, a right. it's a terrible article. But uh, oh, okay. it turns out that basically women are better at any olfactory task you can care to come up with. And they know it. So there's a survey involving 1.5 million people. Okay. Basically, around the entire world, women have a higher opinion of their olfactory capabilities. Uh, Interesting. Better perception. Uh, they're more sensitive. They have better identification abilities. And then yeah. there's some sort of evolutionary... And it occurs early in life. So female new newborns are better at smelling their mother's breasts or their mother's breast okay. odor when it's on a pad compared to uh, compared to us guys. Okay. Wow. Well, so many jokes to be made here, but uh, I'll pass, I guess. Exactly, because you're a guy. Well, yeah. But then, as for why, there's just... So it, the two reasons the article lays out are, one is all these experiments could be really bad, and two yeah. is, woo, evolutionary psychology, woo. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, you can you could come up with a just-so story. Oh, and they do. They, do, they have several pages of just-so stories. And they're not even Kipling. Yeah. Well, I assume it's the idea, like, the, the men are the hunter-gatherers in sort of tribal, you know, early society, and women are kind of, you know, stuck at home taking care of the kids. And you would presume that olfaction would be helpful in child rearing to like sort of smell what was wrong with your kid or to identify your own kid more so than men who have less parental investment. And also that if you're hunting and, and you know, so forth, that that's mostly a visual type thing. I mean, I guess you would maybe want to smell your prey, but that, you know, I guess the women are more of sitting ducks in the village. So they might be more sensitive to like the threat of both like predators and aggressive men and so forth like i i could see that like i could i could make up such a just so story but i don't know if that's the same as the one they came up with uh no they sort of go for all of them <laughs> okay well and you could you could argue that women have to be much more selective when mating that's sort of a general principle of evolutionary psychology so that they would want to be more sensitive to male odors than men would have to be for females that was in fact the next paragraph did you write this review no, but I I know a fair number of uh, evolutionary psychologists, so... And it's apparently also true for squirrels, mice... I'm sorry, rabbits, mice... So yeah, I guess it's a thing. Okay. Now some weird noise popping up in my... Oh, you know what, I think that's just the wind outside. I've, I've opened my window uh, to get most of the carcinogens out, so... Uh, or of that, uh, to keep myself from breathing in too many of them, so you might hear some Malaysia background noise occasionally. Let's see. So what else is on our list that's nose-related? We've been hitting the noses hard. <laughs> yes. So one thing I wanted to get to, which is a quickie, is my new, my what I propose to be my new series on weird animal sex. 
because this started out as one or two things and then I came upon, no pun intended, uh, like a million <laughs> different weird <laughs> weird animal like mating rituals and so forth. So I propose that I do one or two of these or we do one of one or two of these in each episode, but we don't get to um, all of them today. So you're not counting the possible human-chimp hybrid? Uh, not counting that one because, yeah, that's a little apocryphal. Okay. But we could do one or two of those real quickly. Lead the way, sir. Lead the way. Well, so duck penises are going to have to have their entire whole episode because they're just uh, – duck duck sexuality is fascinating and weird. So we'll just tease that one. <laughs> but, yes. So to speak. Stay tuned if you want to hear more about duck penises and why Donald Duck always had to wear a towel around his waist when he got out of the shower. Uh, but the white-fronted parrot, this is kind of appropriate – to what we were just talking about. The white-fronted parrot, uh, one thing they do in the mating ritual is the male will vomit into the female's mouth while they're mating. Um, so they do what looks like kissing, which is kind of romantic, I guess, until uh, until the beak lock you know, ends up in not just kissing, but uh, the male kind of pukes up some stuff into the female's mouth. And basically... Well, actually, this is kind of interesting. I Sorry, I, I read this too quickly, and I thought it was more appropriate than it was, but it, it segues into a second one that, that is more appropriate. So this is not thought to be, as I misread it originally, a way of testing like genetic compatibility, right? So you could imagine that's the case, but actually it's thought to more be sort of like what baby bird or mama birds do for baby birds, which is like a feeding thing. So you give like partially digested regurgitated food and it's like a little present for the female. It's a way of saying like, Hey, look at me. I am a healthy male. I can, it's, I mean, it's just basically the parrot equivalent of taking your date out to Chili's, right? Like it's uh... <laughs> very much <laughs> it's like... so in fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's just with slightly more pre-digestion going on in the parrot case. So like Applebee's then maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So it's a little gift by saying, like, look at me. I, I can obtain food and, you know, here's some of it for you, my dear. Can I object to one thing while we're talking about this? Sure. I'm looking at a photo of the white-fronted parrot. It doesn't have a white front? It's green! Yeah, I'm not sure if some of the others have actual whiter fronts, but I noted that as well. No, I've looked at, like, five or six different white-fronted parrots. Um, it's called the white... Apparently the real name, although on Today I Found Out, which is where... Uh, today I found out that this is true about parrots. They call it the white-fronted parrot, but apparently it's on Wikipedia and elsewhere it's more commonly known as the white-fronted Amazon or spectacled Amazon parrot. Okay, that's not... I wasn't complaining about the parrot part. Oh, I guess when they say front, it might... I guess they mean above the... Like, between the eyes, there's this, like... Yeah, it's got it's got a white patch on its, like, parrot forehead. It sort of looks like its brain is exposed. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that must be what, what they're referring to. Maybe that's a birding term. I don't know if front, does that usually mean forehead on a bird? I'm not actually sure. I could. That's a good point. Because you have, like, Robin Redbreast. Maybe if you're talking about the front of the chest, you're, you more refer to it that way. But I don't know. If you're a bird person, tell us. It's really also called the Spectacled Amazon Parrot, which is a much better name. Yeah. Cause, oh, it does look like it has sunglasses on with those little red spots. Yeah, it's got little, because it's got, yes, it's mostly green with red patches around its eyes, a little uh, white thing just above the beak and it's got a little blue patch above that i think right onto the on the crown of its head so yeah yeah it's much more colorful than the name uh implies actually but much less white ironically yeah not so much white it's sort of got a little uh, french flag on its head actually oh they're all over mexico we could go see them oh cool all right i'll make a tr- put that in my uh to-do list um so 
more related. So maybe this will be like number two today for weird animal mating, and we'll we'll cap it at this, and we'll do more later. But apparently, giraffes do something that is more related to the whole testing of the genetic compatibility thing. Oh yes, giraffes are gross. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's called the I think it's pronounced flamen sequence, where the male giraffe will approach the female. This is again linked on today. I found out. Dot com. The male giraffe will approach the female and then rub against her backside until she pees, and he will get a mouthful of it and taste it to test whether she's in heat or not. And I think also there's some amount of uh, genetic, you know, compatibility testing going on here too. It is thought. So I mean, there's various other stuff to the giraffe mating ritual, but um, giraffes are pretty amazingly weird. That, well, it, well, actually, yeah, I was going to say that's mostly it, but actually, there's also the fact that apparently, 75 to 94 percent of the time that male giraffes uh, fornicate, it is actually with another male giraffe. <laughs> I saw this in a paper which referred to with a totally straight face the more and less gay giraffes. <laughs> uh, interesting. Tractor beams and gay giraffes. Also, they have black tongues. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe we can, on the tongue front, there's another tongue-related thing. Male giraffes will actually, well, giraffes will actually do something called necking, but that is actually not the same kind of necking as what humans do. Uh, this is them, like, kind of rubbing their necks against each other. They're kind of like neck-dueling. Two males will neck-duel for dominance, basically. It's not, uh, like, the male kind of making out with the female. Which, I guess, if you have a long neck, you do use that as your... Uh, your sword or your fighting fighting thing. Yeah. Uh, mm. After a duel, it is common for two male giraffes to caress and court each other. Yeah. It's tender, I guess. That, that's kind of like your, your bro makeup period, I suppose, for the giraffes. Whoa, they do this for like more than an hour? Yeah. Also, it takes a baby giraffe to, uh, 400 to 460 days to gestate. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a long time. How big? How big do they get? Well... They're pretty big. So the related tongue thing, did you see that picture of the um, hummingbird tongue that I put on our notes? No. It's at the very, very bottom of our notes. There's an imger, or imager, however you pronounce it. Is it terrifying? It's more just super cool. It's a little terrifying. It's a it's a very super close-up microscopic image, microscopic, you know. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. Okay, so maybe it's a little ter- It kind of looks like two snakes yes. more than an actual tongue. What part of that would not? Snakes with barbs. What wouldn't be terrifying? I think it's kind of awesome. And it has is the channel in the middle how they suck up the nectar? Presumably, right? Oh, that might be. It's kind of like their built-in straw. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up uh, later, but I think that's a pretty good theory. Hummingbirds are pretty amazing. Did you know they can get too cold yeah. and just sort of like freeze? You mean they just kind of go into kind of a stasis state, like a suspended animation? Yeah, it's called topper or topper. Oh, topor or yeah. torpor or topper? Uh, one of those. Hmm. But, uh, like in California, on a particularly cold days, the hummingbirds... Torp, yeah, it's torpor. Torpor, yeah. T-O-R-P-O-R, yeah. They, like, basically just can't move until the morning. That's crazy. So it's sort of like temporary hibernation, almost, or something like that. Yeah, but I think it's actually just so cold that their metabolism is not, like, up to the task of... I wonder if it's the metabolism of the nerves. It could be either. Um, so... Oh, okay, so apparently torpor is pre- i mean is basically synonymous with hibernation but not it's not hibernation in the sense that we think of i mean it's not always hibernation in the sense that we usually think of as with like bears and stuff that go for like months in the winter without really doing much you can have torpor or hibernation for just a short amount of time you can have days yeah so hummingbirds can have daily torpor 
And some mammals, including marsupials, do this as well, like mice and bats. So the metabolic rate and body temperature drop during a portion of the, portion of the day, usually night, to conserve energy. This is all on the Wikipedia page. And I guess this makes sense, right? Because hummingbirds and things like mice and so forth are examples of uh, creatures that have an extraordinarily high metabolism for their body size, right? So like the more you can conserve energy when you're not actively drinking sugar water, the better off you probably are. Yeah, 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 for sure. Anyway, so yes, you should take a look at this forked, terrifying hummingbird image, but maybe I'll put a tag on it on the show notes that says, be cautious because it is super terrifying. It's not super terrifying, but it's... Not as terrifying, uh, I will, uh, I'll tease you with this, not as terrifying as the echidna penis, which uh, may get into our animal sex uh, segment on the next episode. Could I make a request that you never offer to tease me with an echidna penis ever again? <laughs> Have you seen the picture? Uh, the... Hello, NSA. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, now I can't. F- now I can't find the link, so I'll have to. But just Google echidna penis. I'm sure you'll find it. Maybe we'll get your reaction. Whoa, God! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like on cue. Yeah, zoom that sucker right in if you're on the the standard shot of it. Uh, don't don't say too much because we'll have to uh, talk more about this later. I mean, the echidna by itself is fairly terrifying. Yeah. All right, so I have one last thing that's not. It's not very sciencey, but it's a good way to end. Okay. So you're familiar with uh, Will It Blend, I assume. Oh, of course. So I found the uh, the phase change version of Will It Blend called Red Hot Nickel Ball. Oh yeah, you you mentioned this. Yeah, and I, I as you requested, I did not look it up myself so that you can get my live reaction, much like I did just now for the echidna penis. So so the shtick is this guy has a nickel, a ball made of nickel, and he heats it till it's okay. red hot. Then he drops it in yep. things. And he films the reaction. Yep. So you should watch them. It's it's bizarrely fascinating. Is there one that I should look uh, at? Uh, there's one in Elmer's Glue that's pretty awesome. Okay, so let's look up Red Hot Nickel Ball. Nothing's better radio than listening to people YouTube search things. Red Hot Nickel Ball Elmer's Glue. That's true. This is not ah. very radio friendly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll link some of these, but uh, oh. In five... Ah! Oh, dear God! I can skip to the video in one second, but uh, in the meantime, I was assaulted with really loud um, mariachi music or something. From what? <laughs> okay, so now I'm looking at the Red Hot Nickel Ball. He has made the Nickel Ball Red Hot. It's kind of egg-sized and shaped, right? Uh, yeah. I think he made the ball. Okay, it's in the Elmer's glue. Ooh, that is kind of cool. It's kind of bubbling and steaming. It's a little hard to tell what's going on, but... Uh... Oh, no, sorry. Maybe you want to watch the Jello one. Oh, no, keep, keep watching the glue. I take that back. Uh, yeah, it's, it's forming this kind of brown slug-like thing <laughs> kind of around the uh, nickel ball of what I assume is, like, burnt Elmer's glue. It looks kind of caramelized. No, but it's, like, creepy green. Oh, really? It looks more, like, brownish on my display, but... Uh, but it's... It, yeah, it looks kind of like a brain and sort of like something being birthed out of the ooze in, like, an alien-type movie. Oh, that's kind of gross. It's, it's really but, gross. But uh, it's sort of interesting yeah. you know, to... So, you you know, he drops it in all this different stuff, and totally different things happen. Interesting. All right, so I'm going to try the Jello, and then maybe we'll uh, leave the rest as an exercise to the reader. Jello, which I believe the Brits call... Jelly. Jelly? Yeah, but they call Jelly Jam. I tried to explain... 
as a, as an aside, I tried to explain uh, the difference between jelly jam and preserves to some British people, and they were they just looked at me like I was you know talking moon language. They also don't know the apparently they don't have the same kind of gravy we do in in England, but they don't have what they're missing out. They don't have the same kind of gravy we do. Americans do. Oh, that's, well, we have lots of different kinds of gravy. Well, exactly, and they only have the one. They only have like the kind of brownish. I think their gravy is even now I can't remember, but I think their gravy is more like what we would call like au jus for a French dip sandwich. Oh, that's true. Actually, did you watch the Jello one? We can put this in the podcast because the sound is amazing. Oh yeah, if you want to play it, you want to play it out loud so you can hear it in the podcast, and I will maybe watch along. Which this is the Jello one, not the ballistic gelatin, right? This is a green like lime gelatin. Right. So let me um, start the video. Oh crap. All right, I have, I'm going to turn my volume way down because it's super loud. But yeah, if you want to play this one, and I will start at the same time, and I'll watch along with the uh, the listeners. All right, should I unplug my... I'll just unplug my headphones. Yeah, go ahead. All right, here we go. Okay. So here he's heating the ball up with a torch. Yep. And now yeah, the, the ball is red, red hot. As It's actually white hot there. And here he yeah. drops it in. Yep, there it goes. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing noise? It's like a ray gun or something. Yeah. Like a part ray gun and part like helicopter or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's my science-esque contribution. Oh, I have one more. Do we have time for one more? Or should I say, I'll save it for next time. Or another, you mean another topic or another red-hot knuckleball? An- another topic. Okay. Um, how quick is your other topic? I mean, we're at like two hours of recording time, so we should probably wrap up. I'll save it for next time. It's also parasciency. Okay. I'll just add that uh, using this additional piece of evidence, we can narrow down the uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away to a more specific time. Yeah. All right. Cool. So that'll a lot of teasers on this episode. So yeah. tune in next time. My teaser is better than your echidna penis teaser. Oh, I don't know about that. I think <laughs> I think the echidna penis is pretty much guaranteed. I mean, I guess it's cheating if. We've given them enough information that they could just Google image search this themselves. No, but, uh, assuming they you don't want to play do by that. the rules. Some of these people are probably at work. Yeah, and trust me, if you are, you don't want to Google it. Yeah, you might just want to hear the audio description <laughs> of it next time rather than uh, actually look at it yourself. But uh, if you do look at it yourself, I guarantee you it'll be the the awesomest penis you see all week. Well, probably. <laughs> but. Uh... And on that note, thank you for joining us for the Super Science Happy Hour. <laughs> I'm Matt Krauss. Yes, uh, I am Matt Johnson. Uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Quick end of show stuff. So uh, if you'd like to look at the show notes and why wouldn't you after that uh, kind of discussion, go to sshmm.wordpress.com. If you want to offer us feedback like, dear God, do not show us the akin to penis, you can email us at supersciencehappyhour at gmail.com. On our, on our website, on our WordPress site, there's uh, links for you to uh, donate money if you would like to give us money or you can it has the link to the itunes feed if you somehow got this not on itunes or through the website uh, you can get that there or if you want to subscribe with another podcatcher type thing all those links and stuff are on that page and if you want to talk to us on twitter i have to look up what our twitter handle is again i think it's ss hapho s-s-h-a-p-h-o but let me confirm that because uh, it was not reserved by us. It was reserved by our pal, Laura Skelly. Yes, SS Hapo. And hopefully by the time we put this episode up, it will have been used, because right now it's just an egg with no tweets. 
And we should. Oh wait, one more thing. And we should add that we also have our podcasts on uh, YouTube now. Yeah, I was. So I have just started doing that. Um, and if you approve of that, uh, I've been putting. I've only put the first two episodes up, but maybe by the time you hear this, there will be more up. I, I think the preferred way for you to listen is still on iTunes or another podcatcher because uh, we can track the downloads. Well, I mean, that's how most people do it, and we can track the downloads in a bit more efficient manner. And if we ever did advertisers, I think that's mainly what they would look at. But if for some reason you want to um, you know, listen on YouTube, by all means, please do. There is some more entertaining cover art on YouTube. Oh, God, yes, there is. <laughs> I've been putting in pictures of uh, Matt Krause and me together. I... I, I I don't think you and Skelly and I have ever ever had a picture taken of us all to, all three together. We have at SFN in Chicago. Oh, uh, may, so maybe for episode five we'll need to find a picture of all three of us together. But uh, if you just Google Super Science Happy Hour or specifically search YouTube for us, you should find us pretty easily. It is the top hit if you for me if you Google SSHHMM. Actually, that's like yeah, that's basically all us. Our username on YouTube, I think, is Super Science Happy Hour. But uh, it's the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. Yeah, but uh, anyway, you should be able to find it. But we'll post a link on the show notes, and yes, you can listen there if you want, or just look at us dressed up as uh, Blades of Glory for episode one, or uh, just a random picture of us on the beach at night in episode two. That sounds so tender when you put it like that. <laughs> well, yes, I don't think I put the backstory in that one, which is that that was uh, we stopped off with our friend Alice Lee on a random beach that I knew about in Connecticut after after watching a They Might Be Giant show at a casino. But uh, yeah, that's us if you wondered what we looked like and hadn't Googled us otherwise. All right, catch you next time. Thanks for watching or listening or both. See you later. Bye. I can't find a great position for this, like, headset microphone that... Doesn't get my breathing noises too badly, but, uh... <laughs> Well, like, I have it up by my eyeball now. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Yeah, and I still have to be... I noticed, like, in the last one that every time I exhaled, it was, like, horrifically loud. So, you know, I'm trying to avoid having to do too much of that style of editing. But, uh, you know, whatever. You could just breathe more deeply. Yeah, or, you know, just, like, take one giant breath at the beginning of the podcast and, you know, exhale it slowly over two hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll give that a shot. I'll let you... If, it, if the line suddenly goes silent, you might have to send someone to Malaysia to have me revived. Is there, like, a Malaysian 911? You know, there is, and I should really, by now, know what the number is. <laughs> But I, I think it's like 999. It's it's whatever the Brits have, but I forget. Yeah, 999. But 911 probably works too, actually. Maybe. They might be smart enough to like make it redundant. But well, they had I, to add it in England because everyone knows 911 from the movies. But apparently children yeah. are too dumb to pay attention to, you know, school. To what country they live in. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. Stupid, stupid children. Uh, <laughs> kids are so dumb. Oh, I just learned a cool fact, which I'll save for next time. Aha, such a tease. Okay, do you want to know my cool fact? I can repeat it next time. Um, Let me tell you my cool fact so you remind me to repeat it next okay. time. Okay, you can put it in the show notes if you like. Uh. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll hear it if I'll hear it when I go through this again, and, and then I'll remember to put it in the show notes. So go ahead. When you make a hybrid animal, you know how this, the yeah, like get like, yeah, you know how they get like a portmanteau name, you know. Yeah. Like the liger. 
Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah the order indicates uh, the, the relative contributions. So the first part is the male, the second part is the female. Oh, oh, I didn't know it was male and female. I thought it was by, like, preponderance of genes. No, no. So there's a Tigon and both – there's both a Tigon and a Liger. I knew that that was true, but I did not realize it was based on male – well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. I thought it was based on, like, which it looks more like or which – I don't know. But, okay. That is interesting. So humans, he would be a, a male human and a female chimpanzee. But a Chuman would be a male chimpanzee and a female <laughs> human. <laughs> Are you still uh, recording? Oh, that's gonna... Yes, I am. Me too. Okay, good. <laughs> just maybe we'll just, just save that for next that time. Fact in... You can carry over stupid parts like that. <laughs> I guess so, but like you know, that references the uh, the story in this episode, so maybe we'll just stick that in. Okay, this one it won't take too long. Um, all right. Anyway, also, so do we have any other? Uh... <laughs> yep. Sorry, this is from the same thing I'm reading. Uh, the the Russian guy who tried to make the human uh, chimp hybrids. Oh, yeah. The line says, although Ivanova attempted to organize the insemination of human females with chimpanzee sperm, these puns met with resistance from the French colonial <laughs> government. <laughs> One of few things the French uh, government has managed to stand up to. Also, the reason they stopped doing this was not – they stopped trying to arrange this was only because <laughs> their captive chimpanzee died. <laughs> and it was an orangutan. <laughs> Wait, their their chimp was actually an orangutan. Yes. <laughs> I feel like this project was maybe not as well researched as it should have been. I mean, we think we embark on a, a project without having done a full lit search. I think they might have maybe wanted to go back to page one and, uh, you know, read their intro to biology textbook again. 